And in the night services, we're going to begin at 5.30 and go until 7. There'll be child care if you do have a kid to bring that night. He's going to be talking about touching the heart of your child and understanding how God has specifically created each one of your children and how do you then parent or grandparent that child based on the way that God made that child. And so let me tell you, it will be worth your time uh, to be here on that particular Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we finish. Father, we do once again want to just pause today. Remember what took place on this day 15 years ago. Father, to think of the pain that our nation went through, to think of the of the lives that were lost. Father, our hearts still grieve over that. God, I do remember as a young man, I remember seeing people flock to the church in those moments of tragedy. But Father, I pray it wouldn't take another moment of tragedy to bring people back to the church. God, you would work through our lives as believers. And that we would cherish every moment that we have to serve you and to follow you and to be obedient to your commands. Father, as we open your word, as we get into it today, God, we pray that you would move through it, speak to our hearts, and in Christ's name that we pray, amen. I can imagine that if you're, uh, if you're not a young child and old enough to have been alive on 9-11, that you probably remember where you were on that day when the news broke. Of all the things that took place that day, I remember I was sitting at the University of Memphis, and if you were anything like me, there was probably that just a lot of things going through your mind, and an event like that brings up a lot of emotion, brings up a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts, reminds us that we live in an evil world, a world that has fallen into the hands of sin, and that we can't even begin to comprehend how the devil could so fool people into doing such evil, horrific acts. Events like those cause us to feel sorrow, grief for people that we don't even know, people that we would have never met, if for no other reason than we think it could have been us. For no other reason than we think that in those moments it was someone's mother, someone's father, someone's child whose life was taken away way too soon. Events like those cause us to reevaluate our lives and to ask ourselves, what is really important? What is it that really matters that we do on a daily basis? And why are we spending so much time on these things that may seem like they don't really matter at all, but yet a day like that forces us to reevaluate our priorities? But especially, I think it reminds us an event like 9-11 and the terrorist attacks and all the other things, all the other moments of tragedy remind us that life is truly fleeting. That just like that, in an instant, our lives can change. And that life can be taken away. It reminds me, in fact, of what David wrote in Psalm chapter 102, verse 3, when he said, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. 
Or in James, what he wrote in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Have you ever thought about smoke and how quickly it disappears? I mean, just watch this. And think about what David wrote. If I can get a flow. I don't know if you can see that. But it only takes a few instants, a few moments, and it's gone. Maybe it'll linger for a little while, it'll kind of hang in the air, but then it vanishes. In James, it says that life is a vapor. That's why people went to, took a trip to Walmart and bought this. It's gone. Now, I don't bring these things up to be depressing or to, or to, to bring up emotion, but simply to do this, folks, to remind us that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And that life truly does pass in an instant. And that we are not in control. Just like the smoke was not in control of when it would vanish, we are not in control. And so in, those, in, in times like these, we must ask ourselves, what are our priorities? We must ask ourselves this question, what can't wait until tomorrow? Because tomorrow may never come for us. Because tomorrow we might meet our maker. And so this morning, that's what I want to preach on. What cannot wait until tomorrow? And so the first thing that comes to my mind from Scripture that we know cannot wait and should not wait until tomorrow is to receive salvation from the Lord. Now, we are all privileged to live in the United States of America. I, I count that as a privilege it is a blessing to be in a nation where we have the freedoms that we have. But I don't know if you, if you know this, but over the years, the life expectancy of someone who lives in America has risen from 69 years old in 1960 to 79 years old today. And so a person who is born in America today can, can reasonably expect to live to 79 years old. That is a good life. Now, if you want to live a really long time, then you should have been born in the country of Monaco, which is near France, where the life expectancy is 89 years old. The lowest life expectancy in the world belongs to the nation of Chad in Central Africa, where a person born there can expect to live 49 and a half years. Isn't that cool? Now, researchers will tell you all sorts of reasons that will influence whether or not someone would live to a long age, good nutrition, vaccines, um, violence, all kinds of different things, better, you know, better living conditions in one place or the other might affect those things. But, it re but regardless, anywhere that you look, you're probably likely to find some people do, that have lived to a, a ripe old age. And you're also probably likely to hear stories of people who were taken way too soon for whatever reason. And so considering that, I believe that Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 are very important when he says this, 
In a favorable time, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. He says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so though we live in a country where we might expect to live to be 70, 80, maybe even 90, maybe even 100 years if we're lucky. The truth is no one knows when our lives will end. And for that reason, the Bible teaches us that now is the day of salvation. Because the cold, hard truth is every person will die at some point. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it like this. Just as it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So the question is not whether you will die. It is not if you will die. That will happen if Jesus doesn't return first. And I pray that he does. This earthly body of ours is not eternal. They do wear out. But our souls are eternal. And so the question is whether or not we will die. The question is where will our souls be when our earthly body does go? Will we spend it in eternity in heaven praising God's name or in eternity in hell experiencing the never-ending wrath of God? Now, if you're a Christian and you've shared your faith often, or if you're an unbeliever here today, you've probably made one of the excuses or heard one of these following excuses that I'm about to share, because these are things that I've actually heard from people before when trying to share my faith. Reasons for why they would say, today's not my day, I don't want to receive the Lord today. You might have said this thing, you might have heard this, I have time. You know what, I don't need to receive the Lord today, I've got time for that down the road. Well, no, my friend, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. James reprimands, reprimands those in this passage in James chapter 4. He says, how dare you say today you're going to do this as if you control what's going to happen today or tomorrow. You might have heard the excuse, I have more important things to worry about right now. I've got bigger, bigger fish to fry, bigger things on my plate to deal with than worrying about eternity worrying about my spiritual life well nothing could be more important than your eternal security i mean when we think about our lives and the length of time that we have how could we possibly think that what i am doing today is more important than what i'll be doing for the rest of eternity if you if we were to imagine the the width of this stage to be the history of the world from the moment that Christ, the, the moment that God created it in Genesis chapter 1 all the way until today on that far edge, do you know where we, where, what, what span would represent our life? Probably less than the thickness of a piece of paper. And so for someone to say, you know what, I have more important things to do today in that little tiny sliver of time than to concern myself over what I'll be doing for the rest of eternity. It's ridiculous. Another excuse might be, I don't want to surrender my life to God's control. I want to be able to do what I want to do. Well, the reality is your life is already in God's control. He chose the day you were born. You will choose the day you die. And so the question is not whether or not you're going to surrender to his control. The question is whether you're going to fight against the control that he already has in your life. Or maybe you might say, I don't believe all this Jesus stuff. 
Well, the reality is, what the que- or really the question is, what are you putting your faith in? Because even for the atheist, you are putting your faith in a religion of sorts, a religion of believing that there is no God. And the question that always comes to my mind is this, for the atheist. If at the end of life, I'm wrong, well, then I have lost nothing because life is truly pointless. But if the end of life, the atheist is wrong, he has lost everything because he has spent eternity separated from the God who loved him and offered his son to die for him. And so all those excuses will not change the reality that there will come a day when your time on earth is up. And as we're told in Psalm chapter 95, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so first and foremost, I would say today, what cannot wait for tomorrow is to receive the Lord as your Lord and Savior, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The second matter that we shouldn't put off until tomorrow would be this, to serve the Lord. Knowing that our days are limited, let me ask you this question. When that day comes that your life on earth does end, what do you hope you're remembered for? What do you hope that people say about you? Maybe that you loved your family well. Maybe that you made some contribution to society. Maybe that you are a hard worker. Maybe that you put smiles on the faces of people. Maybe that you changed lives. Those are all wonderful things. But ultimately, ultimately, you know what I hope people say about me? And I hope and pray they say about you? That we served our Lord with all of our heart. And that we did not waste opportunities to serve him with the days that we were given. Let me ask it a different way. If we were to imagine our lives as an investment unto the Lord, that every day that we are given is a day that we invest in his kingdom, what kind of return on investment is God getting from my life? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if you would. very familiar verse you probably have it by memory but we'll still turn there <clears throat> Romans 12:1 reads like this I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God And so what is about to come is based on the work that God has already done in our lives. Because of his mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so Paul, first and foremost, is giving a command here, basically saying that we should not just receive the sacrifice that the Lord has made for us, but we should also then give our lives as a sacrifice back to him. He calls on us here to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, this must have sounded extremely unusual to the Jewish believers that Paul was writing to. Because they were not familiar with living sacrifices. They were familiar with sacrifices that were placed on an altar and slaughtered. But yet here he is saying that we are to be living sacrifices. Well, you want to know something about a living sacrifice? 
was expected to move. It was expected to get up. A living sacrifice doesn't just lay on an altar. It doesn't just merely sit and receive from the Lord. It rises to serve the Lord. And so how do we primarily serve the Lord? Through full obedience to His Word. To take seriously what God commands us in the Scripture. Both the don'ts, don't be drunk with wine. Don't use foul or abusive language. Don't commit adultery. And the do's, to care for the orphan and widow. To care for the poor. To share the gospel. The Lord desires our service and our obedience. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel said this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now here is the point that Samuel was making. He was not downplaying the importance of worship. He was saying that empty worship is useless to God. That God did not desire outward ritual that was not coupled with inward obedience. You see, the Israelites at this time in history were going through the motions of burnt sacrifices and laying things on the altar and all these different motions, but they were unwilling to obey with their lives. And they thought that simply by adhering to these outward rituals that everything would be okay. But the Lord told Samuel to tell his people, I'm more interested in your life than what you lay on the altar. You see, he doesn't desire us to just give an hour every week to sit in a pew and receive the word, but to give every moment of our lives lived in obedience to him. Now, why is that? Because serving the Lord reveals the position of our heart. That when we obey the word of the Lord, it reveals that our lives and our hearts are fully trusting in Him. If you have kids, and you probably have went through times in life where they didn't really obey the rules much, right? You know what I'm talking about? In our house, it kind of comes in waves. We go through waves where everything is good and the kids are, are well behaved, and then we go through days where it just seems like it's absolute chaos reigning in our home. But even in those days that things are good, sometimes our boys will say that they will obey, but yet they do not obey. One of our sons, Caleb, has gotten in this habit uh, where he likes, to, uh, he likes to, in the middle of dinner, to get up and to give you a hug. Now, it sounds all, all cute and sweet until you realize that the reason why he's giving you a hug in the middle of dinner is because he wants to wipe his mouth on your shirt. And so we'll fuss at him and say, now, Caleb, do not do that. My shirt is not a napkin. We're at a restaurant, son. We're on our way back to church. Whatever it might be, do not wipe your face on my shirt. And he'll say, okay, Daddy, I won't do it again. And then he'll do it again. What does that reveal? A heart, that is, a mouth that may be saying he's obeying, but a heart that won't. And for him especially, it reveals a life that I hope and pray one day will come to know the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so the reality is those words, our words don't matter much if our lives do not matter. And so how can we serve the Lord? What's, what's a major way that we can serve the Lord? I believe it's the next thing I want to mention that we cannot put off to tomorrow, and that is to love others 
turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You probably know this chapter as the love chapter. I want to read the chapter because I believe it's going to set us up to be able to understand why it is that we can't put off until tomorrow loving others. First Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It not, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And as it says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. So the next logical question might simply be this. Well, then who am I to love? Turn over to Luke chapter 10. I know this feels a little bit like Bible drill today. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answers this question. Chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, talking about Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your neighbor and with, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so notice that the lawyer gives the same answer that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God, love others. But then picking up in verse 29, the lawyer asks a very specific question. He says, he said, it says in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, why would he ask this question? Because he wanted to limit who he had to love. He wanted Jesus to say, well, your neighbor is only your Jewish friends. Or your neighbor is only this particular group. He was looking to justify his behavior and narrow the field so that he would not have to love everybody. But notice what Jesus did in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him passing by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to, be, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now remember that Jews and Samaritans were enemies. They hated one another. And so Jesus was making a point here when he, when he used the Samaritan as the good guy. It was not to say that all Samaritan were, Samaritans were good people. Don't misunderstand this parable. Because not all Samaritans were good people, just like not all Jewish people were good people. All are sinners. So let's get that straight. That was not the point. But his point was to do this, to push this Jewish lawyer outside of his little box of self-righteousness, his little box of prejudice, and force him to think, and force him to ask himself, what does it mean to be a neighbor? You see, Jesus changed the question. The question was not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how can I be a neighbor? You see, so often we have a tendency to give love and to withhold love based on how we have been treated, how we have been loved. We give love by, based on how we think others will respond. We give love based on who that person is. But yet Christ, in this parable teaches this, that we ought to give love even if wronged, even if cheated, even if that person never acknowledges the love that we give them, even if that person could never repay our love, even if that person comes from that group, comes from that part of town, or is of that nationality, or is even of that religious group, that we as believers are called to love, even to points where it costs us. Think about what the Samaritan did in this parable. He gave up two denarii, two days' wages, to help a stranger. And then went beyond that to say, any more you spend, I will pay back. And so the example was an example of absolute sacrifice, just like the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so just as Christ's love knows no end, our love for others ought to know no end as well. And do you want to know the ultimate way that we can show the love of Christ? It's the final thing that I'll mention today, so can't wait for until tomorrow, and that is to share the gospel. There is no greater way than we, that we can love others. No greater way that we can serve the Lord than invite them to know the Lord as well. If for no other reason than because time is of the essence. Because we do not know what tomorrow holds for that person and we would not want a soul to step into eternity without knowing Jesus Christ. And so I think it's of no coincidence that some of Jesus' last teachings involved this very command. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
you will be my witness. Or consider what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when he said this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I think we can consider this verse, we could really call it the two times two multiplication method. Paul was teaching Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that your faith ought to multiply. Here was this young believer who was being mentored by an older believer, and Paul was saying, Timothy, what I'm giving to you, you pass on to someone else, who will then in turn pass it on to someone else, who will then in turn pass it on to someone else. I heard a preacher say one time that he, he, he thought, and I agree with this, that believers need to have at least three types of people in your life. Three types of other believers who are in your life. That every person ought to have a Paul in your life. A more mature believer in Christ who is leading you to be more like Christ. Just as Paul nurtured Timothy, is there someone in your life who is nurturing you? Everyone should have a Barnabas in your life. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Who is that person in your life who is encouraging you? Who lifts you up when you're down? But also, everyone should have a Timothy in their life. Another person who is either younger in the faith or is lost. Who you are pointing toward Jesus. Who you are actively trying to encourage to follow the Lord. Who is that person in your life? Now, no, Timothy was a, was a believer when Paul met him. He had been led to the Lord by his mother and his grandmother. But I think the principle still applies to the lost. Are there people in your life who you are developing relationships with because you know they need the Lord? And God may have put you in their path so that they could come to know Jesus. Let me just ease your, your ear for a moment. You do not have to have the gift of evangelism to point someone to Jesus. You don't have to be a good speaker. You don't have to have every little bit of theology figured out. You simply have to have a willing spirit and a loving heart. And a desire to see that person come to know the Lord. So today as we close, I, I want to come back to this, this candle real quick again. But I want, you to, I want you to, for a moment, to wipe out the, the idea of the smoke out of your mind. Okay, So don't be thinking about that. Let's imagine that this match represents your life. Your 70s, 80, whatever, whatever God blesses you with, the amount of years that God blesses you with, this is your life. You were born. Began to grow up. Became a teenager. Finally made it through high school. Found a job. Found a spouse. Had some kids. Had some grandkids. And it's gone. What's left? Burn up match, right? But let's imagine if you were to live your life committed to Lord, which I believe almost all of you are, but let's imagine that you saw 
a purpose to your life to point others to Jesus so that when your life on earth ends, you've left something that makes a difference, that you were born to grow up now she's going to go out (laughs) that didn't work don't you hate it when that happens so let's imagine that you gave your life to do this to be the light of the world so that even when your match goes out the legacy of your faith is still living on. That when my days on earth are over, my children are following the Lord. And that someone else's kids are following the Lord because I led that parent to the Lord. And that your grandchildren are following the Lord because you pointed them in that direction. This is what God's called us to. A life that is a candle rather than a match. Father, you have blessed us with life. You have given us many days to serve you. Many days to enjoy our life here on earth. God, to laugh, to play with our kids, to enjoy our days with our spouse, see grandkids come along. But God, I pray we would not take for granted the single day. Sometimes they say that the days are, are short, the days are long, but the years are short in life. And God, I pray that we would consider what can't wait for tomorrow. Father, if there's one in this room that has not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today what they would say now is the day of salvation. And that today they would surrender their life to live for the Lord. To say, I want Jesus to forgive me my sins because I know that is the only way I can have eternal life. And I want him to be the Lord and master, the ruler of my life. And I want to live my days for him. And Father, for the believers in this room today, God, I pray that we would commit ourselves every single day that when our feet hit the ground as we get out of bed to say today I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to love others and I'm going to share the gospel that today I will walk in obedience to the word that I'll seek to show compassion for those who I come in contact with and to show the love of Christ and even be willing to sacrifice of my own comfort so that others may experience the love of Christ through me and that they would hear from my mouth the gospel, the saving message of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, and how he came to live and to die to pay the price for our sins. Father, I pray that our lives would change the lives of those around us as you work through us. God, I pray in this time of invitation that you would speak to our hearts and that we would respond as you